It is with some fear and trepidation that we finally made it to Romans 5.12 and 13 and 14. Uh, This morning we'll be covering those verses and trying to wrap our minds around it. We'll, of course, ask God for wisdom and grace to be able to understand his word. As a matter of fact, let's do that at this moment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Help us, Lord. Help us now. My brothers and sisters here today who uh, some might be discouraged, some might be distracted, Some might be tired, Uh, so Lord, help them. Help me, help my mind to be clear on these things as far as I I can be. Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word through the power of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that this passage would be one today in which we would would fully grasp uh, the intention, meaning, of the biblical author and apply it to our lives appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've taken the last several weeks to work through the beginning of Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, we run across all of these individual blessings of those who are believers in Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 11. It's been a great joy for me to be able to hover with you over that biblical passage and think about all the blessings that we have. Remember we said the benefits are amazing. As the text says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Complete, utter well-being with God through Jesus, through our union with Jesus. We also have access into the grace of God wherein we stand. We have access into the sphere, the realm of God's grace and favor, and we stay there as believers. What amazing benefit that is. And we, uh, we have grounds for boasting in our future hope, our hope of eternal glory. And not only that, we boast in sufferings and tribulations because we know God works in those things in our heart produce greater confidence, tested character, and and stronger hope in our future glory. And we boast in God through our union with Jesus Christ. As we come to the end of the chapter, the chapter really divides in two, Romans 5, 1 through 11, 12 through 21. As we come to the end of the chapter, we switch to consider the effects of Adam's sin and Christ's work on humanity as a whole. Okay, if, if verses 1 through 11 are more about like individual or blessings individual believers experience, then this most definitely is about corporate entities, people, humanity, new humanity. So we come to this section about humanity as a whole. Uh, Paul draws out an extended contrast between two men. The first man, Adam, and the ultimate man, Jesus. And uh, today, we're going to be looking more at the first man, unfortunately, (laughs) Adam. And um, then we'll get to Jesus as well. Now, in in doing so, uh, we come across the actions of both men. 
The actions of both men affect all those who follow them. Adam's sin affects humanity. Jesus' obedience affects new humanity. Those among us who will believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Now Romans 5, 12 through 14 is one of the most difficult passages in Romans. I've not asked our resident Roman scholar if he would agree with that. You can ask him later. I'll let you figure out who it is too. But I think it's one of the most difficult passages, hardest passages in all of Romans. I think it's one of the hardest passages in the New Testament. Now when we come to a hard text, we can do one of two things. We can kind of skip across the surface, ping, 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 or we can dig. The first option, skipping across the surface, is a dangerous choice for us to make that we should always refuse to do as believers. Hovering over a biblical text, looking for any little easy nugget that we can preach or hold on to is dangerous because... We never fully understand the passage or even many times the little nuggets we're trying to redeem for devotional value. When we do that, nothing prevents us from taking God's word in an entirely different direction than God intended. You see, we can easily, in our applications, twist and pervert God's holy word to our own destruction if we're just kind of pinging across the surface. And so the second option, to dig, is much better. It's much better. Okay. But it's not easy. Digging is dirty. And it takes sweat and labor. Yet often digging will produce buried treasure. You could ask our Old Testament professor, Mark Hassler, what you can find when you begin digging around in the soil. I just noticed he's back today. Good to have you back, Mark. He spent most of his summer in Israel looking for archaeological treasures. Okay. Well, the same is true, men and women, of Bible study. If we roll up our sleeves and we apply our minds to prayerful study of even difficult passages of scriptures, we can find great reward. And these scriptures contain greater rewards than any archaeological dig we could ever go on. Sorry, Dr. Hassler. No offense. But if we would dig in today and we look at scripture, God may give us reward in understanding it. And so are you ready? So you just get to it, right? I'm ready. I'm going to talk about this. Okay, so we begin this difficult passage looking at the contrast between Adam and Moses. And uh, this is how the passage unfolds. If you've got a handout, you can kind of see it. I put a little box around it on the front page of that handout. There is an unfinished contrast that Paul starts in verse 12. You can see that because he says, just as this thing, and then he never finishes it. Okay, so in the ESV, at the end of verse 12, you've got like a dash, and that's just telling you the translators are like, well, it's not going to, you know, we're not going to end it here. Just as this is true, that, uh. 
And right after the unfinished contrast, there are two parentheses that Paul puts in here. One is verses 13 and 14. Uh, the other is verses 15 through 17. Two parenthetical thoughts, related, important thoughts, but put these in there. And then what he does in verse 18 and 19 is he's going to go back to that contrast and he'll finish it. It's a contrast between Adam and Jesus. And so he kind of restates it at the beginning of verse 18, and then he finally gets to the, you know, just as, well, this is true. Verses 18b and verse 19. What you have in the rest of the text is just one theological explanation that he will then expound upon in Romans 6 and 7. It's a theological explanation about law and grace. And he's going to make much more out of that in the next few chapters. All right, and so that's kind of a broad overview of what to expect in this passage. Now, we are going to take two sermons to cover this passage. Okay, and some might respond with bewilderment. Like, oh man, come on, we're taking so long in Romans. I know no one in here would ever do that. But uh, this week I noticed John Piper took five sermons through Romans 5, 12 through 21. I have not nearly as much to say as he did. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones got a four-volume commentary in the book of Romans. They were originally expositions. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones took nine sermons to work through Romans 5, 12 through 14. So I'll take only two. Only two. Okay, so let's get into it. We start with the unfinished contrast, verse 12. Uh, Let me read that verse for us. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Here, this unfinished contrast, the just as but nothing after, the first part, has four parts to it. It starts in verse 12 uh, with its first line describing the entrance of sin. Uh, The entrance of sin. So if you're taking notes, that's what that is. The entrance of sin into the human world. There was a time in our world in which uh, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world, a perfect utopia. But then sin was introduced in the Garden of Eden, through the temptation from Satan. In our passage, however, Paul attributes the origins of human sin to one man. One man. And that one man is Adam. As a matter of fact, if you're reading in Romans 5, 12 through 21, and you're looking for key words that are repeated for emphasis, you'll come across the little word one 13 times. And it is used in reference to either Jesus or Adam. Okay, those are the two one man, one man that are being contrasted here. I won't point them out to you, but if you look for the word one, you'll see that. On five occasions, the word one will be used in reference to Jesus, but here eight times, including this one right here in verse 12, it's in reference to Adam. 
And so Paul, in the the first phrase of verse 12, wants to talk about how sin came into the world, and he says it was through the one man, Adam. Now, there are some people, scholars, who will deny a literal historical Adam. One fairly commonly well-known writer, Peter Enns, denies this and, and others like him. They would say Adam is mythical. It's a myth. It's a story. He wasn't real, but this is a story back in Genesis to impart important truths about God. However, and I, I mentioned this too, just in case you run across it, to know that there are huge problems with that idea. One significant problem is that it would, it would be extremely difficult, maybe impossible, to maintain a literal historical Jesus if you don't maintain a literal historical Adam. In other words, if Adam is mythical, then Jesus is mythical. And what's the problem with that? We got big problems at that point. To borrow from the words of Paul, God forbid that we would ever believe something like that. Instead, Paul in verse 12 talks about the entrance of sin through the one man, Adam. This text describes the original or first sin of the historical Adam. Okay, and that's the first part. Now, Beyond that, he's got some things to say about death as well. This passage not only talks about original sin, it also talks about original death. And Paul moves next to consider the entrance of death in the passage. And so what's going to happen in Romans 5, 12 through 21 is we're going to be introduced to kind of two twin tyrannical powers that dominate the world. Here they both come into the world. Sin personified death on its coattails comes in as well. More specifically, death uh, had its entrance into the world through this one sin of Adam. Phrase could be translated here, the second phrase of Romans 5.12, and through the sin, the death. Okay, so After Adam's fall in the garden, the seed of death was implanted into the human race. Back in the Genesis account, God warns Adam, if you eat of the fruit, he says, dying, you will die. And so because of original sin and Adam's choice, humanity also experiences original death. Death follows sin as a fixed Sure consequence. Because Adam sinned, people begin dying. But then, Paul is going to tell us more about death in Romans 5, verse 12. I mean, this one little verse, you think, just one little verse, but this is such a key verse. I heard one preacher say, uh, large doors swing on little hinges. Romans 5, 12. Very, very important. So, uh, Paul says more about death in the next phrase. He says, And so, death 
spread to all men. If I'm creating an outline for this phrase, he's now moving to not just tell us how death came into the world, but how death came to spread into every human being. The universality of death. Here the word spread, the verb was sometimes used in the New Testament of journeying through uh, or passing through a region. Like people going the whole way through the region. Uh, Other times it's used of a sword. I, I found this in one biblical text. A sword that pierced through, was piercing through to the inner parts of a person. It's used in the gospel of the the good news of Jesus uh, spreading through uh, an entire region. And so in this passage, I think what it speaks of, it speaks of death thoroughly spreading through all men, all human beings. And all you got to do is pay attention to what's around you and experience and know that experience confirms that. We live in a world of cemeteries. Death is all around us. It affects every one of us, every person. Apart from the return of the Lord, every man, woman, boy, and girl in this auditorium or anywhere in this facility is going to die. And I think the death that he's describing throughout the text involves not just physical death, but eternal death and separation, as we'll find out later in the passage. But I think what he's saying here is as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, death spreads all throughout them and any natural offspring that would come from this fallen couple. Perhaps an illustration of a terminal disease would help you. Like a terminal disease, death now universally affected the entire human race so that Paul could say, or writers of Scripture could say in other places, we are born in iniquity and sin, or we're dead in trespasses and sins. The universality of death it comes in because of sin. But that leaves us with one important question, and the question is, why is death universal? If you want to write that question down and think about this for a while, why is death universal? Have you ever asked your neighbor or an unbeliever that question? Why do people die? Why, do ev- why does everyone die? Try it. See what kind of answers you can get. I, I'm pretty sure the answers you get will probably be unsatisfactory. Why does everyone die? If you believe what you believe about the formation of the world and everything around us and how everything came to be over millions or billions of years, why is everyone dying? But we're not left to just our neighbors to answer that question. The biblical text is an answer, and Paul, in the very next line, answers that question. And in verse 12, he says, death spreads to all men, and here it is, because all sinned. Okay, and so I I finish out my outline for verse 12. The universality of sin. Because all sinned, all die. And so behind the mystery of universal death lies universal sin. That is, all humanity dies because all humanity sins. No matter how we take this passage, Paul's point is that 
humanity experiences universal death because of universal sin. Okay, but that leads us to a question. What exactly does he mean when he says, all sinned? What is that? And uh, that is a difficult question. Okay. We could spend the rest of our sermon talking about all the different ways people try to answer that question. I just list four here. There's more I could give you. But the problem there would be we would never get out of verse 12. Ever. Okay. In context, however, I suggest that this is what Paul means. Paul means that all sinned in the one sin of the first man, Adam. When did all sin? We all sinned in Adam's sin. Okay, that's the point I would try to make for you. In other words, as the head of the human race, as both the biological and corporate representative for all of humanity, all humanity sins or sinned in Adam's sin. Okay, so when did all sin? When Adam sinned in the garden? That's my answer. Okay, so... And by the way, I'm not the only person to ever answer that question that way. All right, but I do want to deal with a few possible objections because when we hear that, that doesn't usually sit well with us. Individualistic Westerners. So refreshing to hear from Wesley Davey today, to hear of different cultures. And, but for us in our Western society, we think, how in the world... Can God justly charge to my account Adam's sin? Like, how can God punish me for what someone else did? We, we call them questions. They're actually objections to what the Bible says. And I, I want to just respond very briefly in three ways. Because I've wrestled with that question myself. If, if this text tells us that Adam's sin and later on, it, you know, and if it, if it means by that that we sin in Adam's sin, later on in verse 18, I think it, it will say that, that we're all condemned because of that one man. All right, so if, you, if you're not getting it yet, you're going to get it by verse 18. One man condemns everyone. So I've wrestled through this. So here are my three responses to us modern Westerners who struggle. First, this problem is... For Westerners only. Other countries and peoples with tribal heads and monarchical leaders don't normally have a problem with this. They are set up culturally to accept how one leader, like a tribal chief or a king, can make a decision for the whole people. That affects them. We are disadvantaged with our own, our, our individualistic, self-centered culture from accepting this. We are independent people. We can easily, we can't easily see how someone 
What someone else does affects me. But to this, I'd say men and women embrace Scripture, not societal values that you've been taught. Does this Scripture teach original sin? And does it teach that the, con- that the act of one man condemns all people? If so, hold to that. Second way I'd respond to that is this, and this is maybe just very simple, but it's, it's helpful to me. It's like, as I'm wrestling with, how in the world could, like, Adam said, I wasn't even there. Like, how's that fair? Uh, second way I answer that is at the time of Adam and Eve's sin, they are the only living human beings on the planet. Remember that? You read your Bible? So when God responds to their sins, he responds to the sin of the whole race, both Adam and Eve. Consequently, as sin and death-bearing people after the fall, any offspring that they produce naturally will also be sin and death-bearing. So their choice is a choice for the whole race. And everyone that comes out, we all come out of Adam and Eve. They're condemned in sin. They're death-bearing. So are we. And third, I, I just, uh, I want you to think about this. Are you still with me? Are you okay? All right, hang in there. I said, this is a hard, you got your sleeves rolled up, right? It's getting sweaty. You say, I'd never get sweaty in this auditorium. <laughs> you wear like three sweaters in here, I know. <laughs> We're digging in. How do we respond to this objection? Third, we normally only struggle with transferring Adam's sin to our account. And not with the positive solution found in Jesus. We don't like transferring, reckoning, imputing, crediting Adam's sin to our account. But we love transferring, reckoning, imputing, crediting Jesus' righteousness to our account. I know that some of the new perspective on Paul denies this, but historically, Protestants don't have a problem with this. They have no problem with Jesus' righteousness becoming our own. We love passages like 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that says, For our sakes, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like, I love imputed righteousness. Imputed sin? That's not fair. That's not just. In other words, it's inconsistent and stubborn for us to believe that Jesus' righteousness can become our own if we don't believe that Adam's sin is our own as well. And so what this text, I think, is teaching is that all... Humans are thus sinners and subjects of death because of the original sin of Adam. We lie because we're liars. We commit immorality because we are born immoral. And we are sinners subject to death foremost and foundationally because of Adam. And so in verse 12, Paul begins a contrast about the actions of the first man, Adam, His actions led to twin alien predators, sin and death, killing and damning every human being. 
Now, Paul does not immediately finish that contrast. It will not be down until verse 18 that he picks up again, and then that's when he introduces the one we're all waiting for. Right? Our great hero, Jesus, who frees us from the sin and the death. Now, um, Paul doesn't wait so long because he loses track of where he's at. What was I talking about again? No, God leads Paul. Paul is God's spokesman, and he produces Holy Spirit-inspired words here. So God has a reason for the two parentheses, and so that's why I want to look at them with you. Okay, we're only going to look at the first one today, verses 13 and 14. All right, so the first parenthetical comment Uh, This involves universal death. You know, you had that tombstone, universal death. He's going to tell you more about universal death in verses 13 to 14 and how how far it is universal. And boy, if I've struggled with verse 12, verses 13 to 14, okay, drink your coffee right now. Let's read them. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see why I believe covering these two verses today? Two sermons. What does this passage mean? What is Paul's main point? Well, let's start with what we do know, what's clear and easy in this passage. We know that Paul speaks here of death reigning. Look at the very beginning of verse 14. Yet death reigned. That's what this passage is about. Death reigning. That is, this parenthesis is about universal death. The death, at least the universal death of people who existed between Adam, historical Adam, and historical Moses when they lived. Now, there are a few thousand years here where people are living between Adam and Moses. And Paul wants us to consider in this parenthesis, just for a moment, what happened to the people who lived between Adam and Moses. This, what's the simple answer? What happened to them? They died. Good, you got it. Death reigned over them. But his argument, the way he gets there, is more complex. Okay, and I think highlighting just a few phrases, too, in particular verses 13 and 14, will help you see how it's a little complex. First of all, what does this phrase mean? Sin is not counted where there is no law. What does that mean? I mean, if we actually stop, you know, that's the one we want to just, you know, we're doing okay in this text. We get to that phrase, we're like, okay, start the skipping. Ping, ping, ping. Just go away from this. What does this mean? What are the implications of thinking that people without God's law are not held accountable for their sin? So we're going to have to deal with that. And then, you know, we've jumped to the next verse, verse 14, and we come to this phrase, even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What does that mean? 
Adam knew God's law. God told him exactly what he should and shouldn't do in the garden. Adam stepped over the known boundaries and he ate the forbidden fruit. I guess we can understand that. But what does this passage mean? What it describes people from Adam to Moses as not sinning in the same way as Adam. Not stepping over boundaries they knew God's law would forbid. And why does Paul mention this? I've got five minutes left. There are, and we can do this, I think. Maybe I'll take six, but there are two good ways of working through this. There's only one that's true. There, by the way, there are a lot of bad ways, and I'm not going to tell you those. I'm going to give you, like, my two favorite. There are two ways of thinking through this. Only one could be true. Yeah, I prefer the second, but a lot of people like this first way of thinking through this passage. And so the, the, the big point they think Paul's making in verses 13 and 14 is that God's implicit law is enough to condemn people. So there's a way to understand this text that has people dying from Adam to Moses because they have God's law in other forms than the law of Moses or a face-to-face encounter with God where he tells you, eat that, don't eat that. So verse 13 explains that sin was in the world before Moses. And all you have to do is read Genesis to know that that's true. Right? People were still sinning during this time. Cain killed his brother Abel after Adam. God saw the great wickedness of the whole world's population before the flood. He saw their thoughts were only evil continuously, so he sent the great flood. Later, humans uh, build a tower so that they can be like God. And uh, still later, Sodom and Gomorrah are inflamed with immorality and homosexuality so much that God can't even find ten righteous people in the city. Sin was in the world. That'd be the the first part of verse 13. Yet God, the the way to take it in this, this way is, yet God does not count or reckon one's own sin if he doesn't have law. End part of verse 13. Paul continues, however, by saying in verse 14 that even people who did not have God's written law in the law of Moses were still held accountable for their sin. That is, they still died. And so the implied point here for people who take it this way is that these people, these generations of people who were not aware of Moses' law because it wasn't even given yet, still had God's law in other forms. They still knew better. God had imparted his laws to them in different ways, through creation or conscience or through oral law. And so everyone has God's law in some form. There's no person who has no law from God. Consequently, all people are held accountable for their sins. That's one way you can work through the passage, but there's a better way. And, you know, we'll close with this one. I think the point of the passage is just like verse 12, Adam's sin condemns. There's a way more in line with a larger point about what Paul is doing and what he's saying about how Adam's original sin condemns the entire human race to explain this passage. And so backing up to verse 13 again and just walking through it once in this way, Paul considers a group of people here who are not stepping over clearly defined boundaries that they receive directly from God, whether face-to-face or in writing. 
the people who lived from Adam to Moses, they didn't have the Bible, right? Do you know that? They did not have the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. The law of Moses clearly articulated what God's people could do and what they shouldn't do. Yet before that law was given, people were still sinning. That's the point of verse 13a, working through it this way. People were still sinning. Yet God was not counting or reckoning their sin against them because, and this is how you'd take 13b, because they were doing so in ignorance of God's written revelation. God's directly received law. This does not mean that they weren't sinning. Look at verse 14, right in the middle. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression. So what's that imply? They were sinning. The people from Adam and Moses were sinning. They're just not doing it like Adam did. So it does not mean they weren't sinning or that God wasn't punishing them for their murder and pride and immorality. Again, read Genesis and you'll see God punishing people. Instead, and here's the key, God was not counting their sin against their eternal records. That's how I would state it simply. In God's calculation, he was not figuring their ignorant sins against them. All right, so if you believe that, you say, Pastor Brent, you're, you, you know, I don't know what kind of week you had this week, but I don't know. Okay. If you believe that, which I do, what are the implications of that? Well, does that mean all the people from Adam to Moses were free? That they all went to heaven? That they all gained eternal life? I mean, if God is not crediting their sin against them, is that what they get? And my answer is no. Well, what do they get? What then? Well, look in the text. What happened? What did they get? Death. (laughs) They all died. Well, how is that true? I mean, if God's not counting their own personal sins against them and they're dying, how in the world is that true or just? And the answer is Adam's sin condemned the entire human race. That is, the sin of Adam is enough To bring all the consequences of sin, including death, raining down on all human beings. That's why people were dying. In other words, Paul offers a brief parenthesis here to explain that even people, even people who didn't have the law of Moses were condemned because Adam's sin condemns everyone to use the exact words of the Apostle Paul in verse 18. And listen to this. He says, One trespass led to condemnation for... Finish it. All people. How many people? All. Even over generations of people who did not have the advantage 
of having the law of Moses. Even they were condemned because of Adam's sin. The main idea of verses 12 through 14 has been that sin and death universally reign over all humanity. And it is perhaps good for us to sit on that and to think about that for a week. Sin and death, twin tyrannical villains, are controlling all humanity, damning us because of Adam's original sin. I think this will help us to make more sense out of what's going on around us. Why is there so much sin? So much murder? So much abuse? So much hatred? So much lying? So much deceit? Why, why is it just... Why is everyone doing that? And why is there so much death? All around us. Sad sad death. People we love. Elderly people. Young people. This passage will help us. Next week, we're going to learn how much, uh, much more about our hero, Jesus, who in the second half of this, we learn, will overcome sin and death. And he fixes everything for those who believe in him. What we're going to learn about Jesus is his act is superior. It's better. It's stronger. It's greater than Adam's because Jesus is able to deal with sin and death thoroughly. His work is greater because it's harder to clean up a mess than to make a mess. If you don't believe that, just consider your typical teenager's bedroom. You can make a mess in five minutes. If I, if I told you as a congregation, I want you to help destroy this auditorium, I'll give you five minutes. And I'm not telling you to do that. I get in big trouble with the deacons. Okay. I want you to destroy it. Five minutes, go. It would be amazing how much destruction we could do. It would take someone far more talented, someone far more greater to fix it. That's why it takes far more than five minutes to clean up your bedroom after you just let it go. It takes hours, right? Next week, we'll learn more about Jesus, who, in his work, defeats sin and death that are reigning over us. And uh, in our final benediction today as well, I'll be reading a great passage about Jesus and what he's able to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, it was not easy. It's easy for you. You inspired these words. You led Paul, the biblical author. You knew what was in his mind when he wrote this. For us, separated from some distance and ourselves suffering under some of the limitations that are ours because of the fall, 
It's hard for us sometimes to understand. Lord, I pray that you would take your Holy Spirit. I, I know that your Spirit is not just dependent to work through this preaching event. I know throughout the course of this week, you can quietly lead people through their own personal study as they're digging in themselves. Searching, searching for the truth. Lord, I know it's your Spirit that unlocks that. We can't not even receive the things of the Spirit without the Spirit. Lord, through your Spirit, enable our minds to understand the significance of your Word. Help us to grasp these things, and then help us, Lord, as we explain it to our neighbors. Help my brothers and sisters this week as they consider even the ravages of sin and death and how it's pervasive and all around us and in us. Help them, Lord, to to understand this so they can explain it to the, the lost and so that they can get to the end of this passage. It says, you know, just as the disobedience of one man led to condemnation, so... The righteousness of one man leads to righteousness and forgiveness. Lord, help us to understand more about sin and death so that we might appreciate more Jesus. And in his precious name we pray today, amen.